Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. And I have to thank you too. Big time. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Well, a little. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and boy, I know they're breathing a sigh of relief in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. Also breathing a sigh of relief today, uh, Brad uh, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Welcome to another edition of the Bradcast. I think uh, the entire nation right now is breathing that same sigh of relief. As I said, I know I am after moments ago. The reading of the verdict in the killing of George Floyd, the 46-year-old black man in Minneapolis last year uh, who was killed by the 45-year-old white, now former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, uh, as infamously seen on video holding his neck on the handcuffed George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes as the life was choked out of him, leading to protests not just in Minneapolis, Not just across Minnesota, but across the country and indeed across the world in response to that killing uh, last year. Here is the reading of the jury verdict just within the past hour after about 10 hours of deliberation by the jury over two days. Uh, as read by State Judge Peter Cahill on the three charges brought against Chauvin for unintentional second-degree murder, unintentional third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. Verdict, count one. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict, count two. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Same caption, verdict, count three. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count three, 
Second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April 2021 at 1.45 p.m. Are these your verdicts? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. yes. Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy-duty jury service. Indeed, I have to thank you for, uh, on behalf of the entire world, jury up there in uh, in Minneapolis today. Yes, that was very difficult work. It was indeed, and uh, they came to uh, a very good verdict, uh, guilty on all three charges against Chauvin. So... Uh, Desi Doyen, that was about uh, that was after about 45 minutes of nerve wracking waiting after the court had announced that the verdict was in. But it came in, uh, as I said, as a huge sigh of relief. I know it did for me. Man, uh, it was a a tense 45 minutes around here just waiting for that. Yes, yes, it was. And uh, helicopters were already circling over our studios in in Los Angeles. And uh, in anticipation, I believe, preparing for the worst for protests. And, you know, there's no joy in this verdict to me. It's a very sad situation, but at least there is some justice. I suspect we will have more on that verdict. Uh, And there are three other cops who will also be facing trials Uh, for that same murder in the days ahead. But for today, uh, I had planned to talk about policing, as it turns out. And yes, I still will. With my guest coming up momentarily, a policing expert who I actually spoke with earlier today before today's verdict about just one simple reform, seemingly simple, that could be brought to policing in all 50 states that might make a tremendous difference in the number of, uh, well, racially disproportionate incidents that turn violent and or deadly between cops and civilians. Uh, But before I get to my guest today, a quick item or two on the GOP's continuing war on voting under the pretend guise of security following Donald Trump's still evidence-free claims that the 2020 election was somehow stolen from him. Of course, Republicans have been successfully implementing measures to prevent certain voters from voting for years. But now they are in overdrive, whether we can report on it every day on this show or not with everything else that's going on right now. They have been passing restrictive laws, even as at the state level, even as uh, Democrat Joe Manchin in the U.S. Senate is still, as of now, preventing Democrats from reforming the democracy busting legislative filibuster there which if they were able to do so at the very least for measures involving democracy and civil rights would allow them to pass major protections for voters and for elections and for campaigns that would make make them all both uh, both uh, more secure and more small d democratic. That would include passage of landmark bills such as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and H.R. 1, the For the People Act. But as long as uh, until then, as Democrats dither, more specifically, as all Republicans in the Senate and Democratic senators like Joe Manchin obstruct, until then, Republicans continue to move forward with their new voter suppression measures at the state level. They've already passed laws to do exactly that in Iowa and in Georgia. 
And on Monday, it was Montana's turn. Yes, Montana. Governor Greg Gianforte, uh, you'll remember him. He actually physically beat up a journalist the night before his first election to Congress about four years ago, but was elected by Montanans anyway uh, and has since now been promoted to uh, to governor there. He signed into law two bills on Monday impacting the way Montanans vote. Uh, HB 176 ends same-day voter registration in Montana. That will do nothing more than make it more difficult for voters to vote, even though there has been no known problems with same-day voter registration in Montana since that policy was adopted on a bipartisan basis, a broad bipartisan basis back in 2005. The other bill is SB 169, which adds new requirements for ID when voting and for registering to vote. Now, ID is already required, by the way, for registering to vote in all 50 states, under federal law, the Help America Vote Act of 2002. But in this new law in Montana, notably, student IDs are no longer valid. They used to be no longer, not without a second form of ID when voting at the polls. Democrats have already filed suit against both of those new laws. Uh, Sandra Sandy Lucky, the uh, Montana Democratic Party executive director, said on Tuesday in announcing the suit, quote, as Democrats, we stand and have always fought for fair elections. And it goes against everything we believe as Americans to impede people's voting rights. In the uh, complaint, the Democrats characterized the new laws as, quote, legislative shadow boxing aimed at imaginary threats to election integrity and false accusations of election fraud orchestrated by those seeking to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The complaint accuses the Republican-controlled legislature of passing laws that would disproportionately burden the ability of students, the elderly, people with disabilities, and, yes, Native Americans to cast a vote. As to ending same-day registration, the lawsuit alleges that voters in the state are, quote, nearly 16 times more likely to register on Election Day than on any other day during the late registration period, and that experts have found that Election Day registration increases overall turnout by an average of 5%. Well, there's your problem right there. Exactly. You can't have higher voter turnout by 5% if that means that a Republican won't get elected. And, of course, it's Montana, so they usually do. The complaint criticizes the new voter ID restrictions as, quote, an even more precise attack on Montana's youngest voters. SB 169 creates the requirement for photo ID to vote in person and specifies that only a state photo ID or driver's license, a tribal photo ID, a military ID or a concealed carry permit permit is sufficient by itself to vote. All other types of photo ID, including those issued by high schools and uh, many colleges, well, voters would have to provide an official document a separate official document showing their name and address like a utility bill, a bank statement or a car registration. The Democrats complaint argues, though, that during the 20 years, 20 years that student IDs have been sufficient to vote in Montana, quote, the law has been entirely effective at preventing even a single known instance of voter fraud in the state. 
As well, multiple lawsuits in recent years have failed to turn up any documented cases of election fraud in the state's modern history. So we will see how that goes. But so far, three restrictive state voting laws uh, have been passed in three different states, Iowa, Georgia, now Montana, with three lawsuits filed immediately in response. At the federal level, of course, things are bottlenecked in the U.S. Senate, where Senate Judiciary Committee ranking member Republican Chuck Grassley of Iowa, the first uh, state this year to pass a newly restrictive voting law, he set the tone for his party's reaction to Democratic accusations of voter suppression on Tuesday, at this uh, at a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, as he railed against Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game out of Atlanta in response to that state's uh, Georgia's new voter suppression law. How the former Senate Judiciary Committee chair did so not on Fox News, mind you, but in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. In a hearing called Jim Crow 2021, the latest assault on the right to vote, that needs to be highlighted here very quickly. First, Grassley said this. When you make political comments and it hurts people's pocketbooks, it ought to be something you'd, everybody would be offended by. Most infamously, Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game from Atlanta, a move that's likely to cost the city's economy a hundred million jobs, and that's affecting the income of uh, Georgians and probably some jobs in Georgia. Okay, probably some jobs in Georgia, apparently a hundred million jobs in Georgia, which is impressive given there's only about 11 million people total in Georgia. Oh, God. Across the country, I think there is, what, a hundred and... There's only 150 million jobs total in the country, <laughs> so a so hundred million jobs seems a little off. You think? Facts are not real important these days to Republicans. Uh, Chuck Grassley then said this. A state senator lost his job at a prominent law firm after political activists took a break from fleecing their donors to get him fired for his work as a citizen legislator. When partisans and companies collude to ruin the livelihoods of their opponents, there's a term for that. It's economic terrorism. Jesus, these people are drama queens. Economic terrorism? Really, Mr. Grassley? A company exercising their right to uh, free expression, uh, to do business as they please with whomever they please. That's now terrorism. Really? Grassley also mentioned that uh, state senator uh, losing his job at a law firm, uh, seeming reference to uh, state senator John Albers, who has said he's a victim of cancel culture. Now, I don't know the story, but if he was run out of his job for supporting voter suppression laws, I would not call that cancel culture. I would call that the free market. And you'd think that Republicans would be in favor of that, except that, like so much else they pretend to espouse, they're not really in favor of the free market or even the First Amendment at all. They are also against 
anything. They are anything but against uh, so-called cancel culture. They invented it, in fact. Just ask the Dixie Chicks when they were banned from radio stations back in, what, 2004 across the nation when Republicans decided they didn't like the Texas musicians, noting that they were embarrassed that George W. Bush came from Texas. That statement alone was enough to get them canceled Back during the W years, when uh, Clear Channels and other huge companies who own all of the radio stations pretty much across the country announced that they would no longer play any of the group's music. Now, that was actual cancel culture, or as Chuck Grassley might call it, economic terrorism. I don't think I heard his complaints about it at the time. And if pulling a game from Georgia is economic terrorism... What should we call it when the Florida uh, Republican Senator Rick Scott, who's chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, released an open letter on Monday to, quote, woke corporations in which he says, quote, there is a massive backlash coming. You will rue the day when it hits you. That day is November 8, 2022. That's Election Day next year. He says it will be a day of reckoning. For those woke corporations. Now, what that means, I don't know, but it sure sounds like what Chuck Grassley might call terrorism if it was directed at something Republicans did. Anyway, more on all of that in the days ahead. Right now, let me get back to some actual reform instead of political terrorism. Policing and law expert Jordan Blair Woods joins me next to discuss one simple idea for reforming policing in this country that could have a huge effect on so many of the heartbreaking killings by cops that we have seen on video recently when it comes to traffic stops, often of people of color that end up turning deadly. That's straight ahead on the broadcast, uh, followed by our latest Green News report with quite a bit of really big and good news today, Des. At least there's that. Uh, you won't want to miss that either. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yeah, good for you, Sammy Hagar. You can't drive 55, but the good news is you probably won't be pulled over and killed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In the wake of a tsunami of video evidence of police violence against civilians, disproportionately black civilians, reformers have called for rethinking policing in the U.S. That rethinking has surfaced at times among activists under the somewhat misleading call to defund the police. While most who use that phrase do not mean getting rid of policing entirely, the clumsy vagueness of the phrase has led opponents of the movement to shut down the idea of long overdue policing reforms altogether in many cases. 
rethinking the mission of already overtasked police forces, reallocating resources from police to those better equipped and better trained to handle tasks that cops are now called to deal with, even when a person with a gun might be the worst person to send into a situation, is beginning to happen nonetheless, often with little national coverage all over the country. As Meg O'Connor at The Appeal reported earlier this year, in the wake of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and too many others, there have been more calls to rethink America's reliance on police as a cure-all to societal issues they are ill-equipped to deal with. Some cities are beginning to reconsider the idea of requiring armed officers to also play the parts of homeless services workers, mental health and substance use counselors, and school safety agents. In November, San Francisco launched a program to send behavioral health and medical professionals instead of police to respond to 911 calls involving nonviolent people experiencing mental health crises or substance use issues. The Seattle City Council voted to disband a team of police tasked with responding to homeless people and instead reinvest the team's funding in community programs to help help the homeless. In Portland, Oregon, the mayor and superintendent agreed to remove police officers from the city's schools and put the $1 million budgeted for school resource officers back into the community. And in Austin, Texas, the city council there voted to cut over $20 million from the police department's budget to open a family violence shelter and fund violence prevention programs, housing services, substance use and mental health care services, and more. The council intends to shrink the department's budget and responsibilities even further by civilianizing many of its current duties like dispatch and forensics. But the most common way, O'Connor noted this past January, that people come into contact with the police in situations that can often turn deadly is via simple traffic stops, over 24 million of them each year, many of which, as we have been reminded yet again of late, turn unnecessarily deadly. A Minnesota police officer pulled over Philando Castile for a broken taillight then shot at him seven times when Castile tried to provide the officer with his license and registration, killing him. A Texas state trooper pulled over Sandra Bland for not signaling when she changed lanes. Three days later, she was found dead in a jail cell. A New Jersey state trooper pulled Maurice Gordon over for speeding, then shot him six times, killing him. Of course, the memory of Dante Wright, a black 20-year-old motorist pulled over for expired license plates, plate tags and an air freshener hanging from his rearview mirror in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota last week, who was then shot and killed by a 26-year veteran cop who claims she only meant to tase him. That's still fresh in our memories as protests over that incident, which themselves have turned violent, often in response to an overly violent response from police have continued nightly in Brooklyn Center and elsewhere since then. And, of course, there is the appalling case of Army Lieutenant Caron Nazaria, who, police body cam video released just last week shows, was pulled over for missing license plates in Windsor, Virginia last December 
even though Nazario's temporary tags for his new car were clearly visible in the window of the new vehicle. And the man was seen clearly, politely, complying with the police. Despite that, he was nonetheless pepper-sprayed and thrown to the ground by two out-of-control cops who treated the incident as if the black, Hispanic, uniformed U.S. Army lieutenant was somehow wired with explosives or something. Thankfully, in that instance, Nazario lived to sue the cops for their outrageous and unnecessarily violent behavior. But over 24 million people each year come into contact with police during a traffic stop. That according to data from the Department of Justice. And traffic stops can be especially dangerous and discriminatory for people of color. Black drivers are 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers and as much as twice as likely to be searched. According to a study of 100 million traffic stops conducted by the Stanford Open Policing Project. And 11% of all fatal shootings by police in 2015 alone occurred during traffic stops, according to a Washington Post database of police killings. Whatever the reason for so many unnecessary deaths at the hands of police during traffic stops, there is what seems a rather simple solution, at least if we're actually serious about the need for reforms that might save people's lives. Removing police from traffic enforcement. In an article in the Stanford Law Review, Professor Jordan Blair Woods of the University of Arkansas offers a framework for how local governments can disentangle simple traffic enforcement from the police department. While the appeals Meg O'Connor notes that may sound revolutionary, it's already being tried around the nation. The city of Berkeley, California, passed a proposal to do exactly this last July, calling for the creation of a Department of Transportation to shift traffic and parking enforcement away from Berkeley Police Department uh, to this new traffic department. Unarmed agents would instead be responsible for carrying out traffic stops. If we're serious about transforming the country's relationship with police, we have to start by taking on Americans' most common interaction with law enforcement. And that would be traffic stops, says uh, Rigel Robinson, the Berkeley City Council member who proposed this initiative. Proposals similar to that one passed by Berkeley have been explored in Cambridge, Massachusetts, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Hello, AM 950 and Montgomery County, Maryland. Elsewhere, bills have been proposed that would bar police from pulling people over for minor traffic infractions like tinted windows, faulty brake lights, or yes, dangling air fresheners. New York's Attorney General recommended that the NYPD stop handling traffic stops. And in 2019, Mayor Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C., move the city's automated traffic enforcement away from the jurisdiction of the police department to the Department of Transportation. All of these ideas and more are included in Professor Wood's framework in the Stanford Law Review, which uh, seems both revolutionary and at the same time kind of a no-brainer. Joining us now is Professor Jordan Blair Woods, criminologist and associate professor of law at the University of Arkansas School of Law. Professor Woods, it's an honor to have you, sir. Welcome to the broadcast. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. The uh, is is there a danger, uh, Professor, when when discussing this idea of of removing police entirely from traffic enforcement, and we'll get into some of the details of what that does and doesn't mean. But is there a danger that we are overemphasizing the hazards of this practice? We do see outrageous incidents highlighted seemingly now every day, but uh, but there are, as noted, some 24 million such stops each year, the vast majority of which do not turn either deadly or dangerous. So are we over-concerned about this as a problem? So I think that we've been over-concerned about the dangers of traffic stops, especially from the perspective of officers for quite some time. Uh, and you know, one of the key reasons why uh, we see officers having so much authority to do what they're able to do during traffic stops uh, really rests on this myth that traffic stops are especially dangerous settings for police officers. Um, but what we're seeing playing out uh, and what empirical research has you know, really documented is that when we're thinking about uh, who's really harmed during traffic stops, uh, it's you know stop motorists and in particular uh, those who are from communities of color that are disproportionately stopped, mm-hmm. uh, frisked, cited, uh, arrested, and ultimately subjected to force, and uh, unfortunately, uh, too many times uh, it results in their death during traffic stops. So with that said, what you are proposing uh, seems ingeniously simple, I got to say, Jordan, <laughs> if, if I, at least if I understand it correctly. Explain your framework for us uh, for essentially just replacing armed police with unarmed traffic monitors and, and how that might work exactly. Absolutely. So the basic idea behind the framework is that we know that Tens of millions of traffic stops occur every year, and many of these are for uh, run-of-the-mill traffic violations. Mm -hmm. And it really presses the big question, why do we have and why do we need police to be doing this type of work? Mm -hmm. And so what I argue in my framework is that we don't need police to be involved uh, in this type of enforcement. And so it creates uh, new public agencies that are completely separate from the police, uh, work independently of the police. And uh, their basic role is to enforce traffic and not to conduct criminal investigations during traffic, which is really where we see a lot of problems during traffic stops today uh, uh, come from. The idea that the traffic stop isn't really about the traffic stop, it's you know, a means for police to search for evidence of crime that they might not even have probable cause or reasonable suspicion of. So these independent public uh, agencies that I call uh, traffic agencies mm-hmm. would hire unarmed traffic monitors to essentially do uh, routine traffic enforcement. Uh, they wouldn't be armed. They wouldn't have the typical police powers to search or arrest. And really, it brings back the traffic stop to being uh, just about traffic. And uh, to the extent that there were jurisdictions that uh, maybe used red light or uh, speeding cameras, mm-hmm. the traffic agencies would uh, handle all aspects of uh, the uh, what they call uh, automated traffic enforcement from stop to finish rather than the police. And there would otherwise be uh, this the, these traffic uh, monitors and so forth would be doing pretty much what the police does. They would be the ones hanging out with the, with the speed cameras and so forth and, and pulling us over when we were speeding, but they would be doing so 
without the same kind of intimidating uh, police cars, uh, armed uh, tasers, guns, everything else uh, when they gave someone a ticket? Or would they just say, hey, that guy was speeding. I'm going to send him a ticket. Exactly. I mean, so there is room for really jurisdictions to um, you know play with how they want to execute the framework. But the idea here is that uh, at the very least, we wouldn't have armed officers conducting in-person traffic stops for uh, run-of-the-mill traffic mm-hmm. violations. And uh, you know, one of the advantages that I see to having uh, non-police agencies and non-police uh, traffic monitors conducting these types of stops is that um, you know then you know we could really use discretion in ways to only be enforcing traffic laws in situations where um, you know we think that there's a, a notable safety threat and eliminating um, you know these situations that we're seeing now over air fresheners where right. we know that these minor infractions are being used for pretextual reasons by police to pull people over. Um, we avoid that by. Uh, at least moving to a regime where police aren't handling this type of work. Now, even though these violent confrontations uh, are are still the exception to the rule, yes, they disproportionately affect people of color, but um, overall... You know, when you're talking about 24 million incidents, uh, the violent confrontations are, are are ultimately very few comparatively. But would these traffic monitors then also be potentially placed into harm's way without having the tools that they might need to stay safe, like a gun or a taser? So that's a great question. And you know, in prior research that uh, I conducted that was uh, published in the Michigan Law Review, I really focused on this question of what are the circumstances and how frequent do officers experience violence when they are uh, conducting routine traffic stops. And you know, right now there's this myth that's perpetuated in law enforcement agencies and even in courts that traffic stops are just exceptionally dangerous situations for officers. Mm-hmm. And when I dove into the empirical research, um, what I found in general is that that myth isn't really uh, supported by uh, empirical studies and empirical data, mm-hmm. and that really the violence that does occur uh, that officers experience during these stops, it's often um, low risk, uh, it often doesn't involve weapons, and it uh, often infrequently incur- occurs. And what I found is that when these incidents tend to occur, that violence experience assaults, Often it's because officers are invoking their authority in some way mm. that's really beyond the basics of a traffic stop, like asking for a driver's license or registration. It's things like ordering them out of cars, ordering people uh, to do certain things, touching people, reaching inside of the car, um, you know, essentially invoking their authority in ways that go above and beyond what we really need in a basic traffic stop. So my hope is that in having a new framework where we have unarmed agents Mm -hmm. and that they don't have these types of powers that are so connected to why traffic stops escalate, uh, that we'll have even less incidents that devolve into violence. Now, that said, I think that, um, you know, any uh, basic training of what these traffic monitors would do, you would have basic self-defense training, uh, de-escalation tactics. Um, but the idea is that right now, 
uh, traffic stops often devolve into these violent situations because the stakes of a traffic stop are just so much higher than traffic. And mm. if we went back to a system where uh, the, the stakes of the traffic stop were just about traffic, um, we would see less of these incidents really turn into deadly situations. Yeah, you talked about some of this uh, recently with our good friend Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate, um, and yes. he, he cites your um, your 2019 article in the Michigan Law Review on this point that, uh, you know, even though these incidents are very rare, cops are essentially trained to uh, deal with every single confrontation, every single uh, 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 incident as if it could turn deadly at any point. So they sort of go into it with that mindset. And then when you, of course, when you have that mindset, boy, if somebody uh, reaches over uh, towards their glove box in a way that, you know, you weren't expected, expecting, well, you know, suddenly you find yourself firing. Does the suggestion you know, I'm sort of like what you're suggesting, Jordan, is it seems so obvious and common sense that I'm sure there must be something terribly wrong with it that I'm not noticing. <laughs> so, for example, would simply changing the way that we train police to deal with these routine traffic stops, does that have any hope of, of uh, rectifying the current situation? I mean, so I think that this is one of the big questions that policing scholars and policing researchers and advocates are really pushing. And I, I think that the recent incidents that we're seeing where even officers that have had training that have been on the force for quite a bit of time are still winding up in these situations where they're using firearms in, in ways that result in the tragic killings of uh, unarmed people of color uh, it's happening over and over again. And so these questions about police training, um, you know, of course, always, you know, police training is something that we should be thinking about. But what I think that we really need to be doing is re-envisioning how we think about traffic enforcement and re-envisioning not just how police are trained, but what role we think police should have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, police training, as good as you get it, um, that's never going to change what we're asking police officers to do. And what this framework does is it says, you know, we should be questioning the you know, the basic mm-hmm. uh, duty that we place on police officers to enforce traffic laws. Why is it that armed officers are the ones that we're putting in these situations when there's another way to really address traffic safety issues? Well, one of the reasons that you and uh, and Mark uh, over at Slate sort of touched on is how traffic stops have been allowed by the courts, essentially, uh, as a pretext for what is actually a what has become anyway a key law enforcement technique uh, by police, uh, which you know can turn a routine traffic stop into a more serious and deadly event involving search and seizure and crimes that go above and beyond the actual traffic stop, all under the guise of you know someone changing lanes without using their blinker. How large of a role does the use of traffic stops to further actual criminal investigations on other matters that have nothing to do with the traffic, uh, you know, how large a role does that play in these incidents that ultimately turn violent in some way when they, you know, check my license and they find out, oh, I'm I'm uh, wanted for, uh, you know, child support or something like that, that, you know, is sort of added to these uh, pullovers. It's a huge uh, part of the problem, and really what the traffic stop has 
turn into over the course of uh, you know the past few decades is that it's not simply just a means to enforce traffic laws. Uh, law enforcement officers really use traffic stops mm-hmm. as what they view as just an efficient means to come into contact with uh, you know people who they either suspect of criminal offenses mm-hmm. or um, who they want to stop and just try to figure out you know what's going on and often um, you know who's being stopped for these pretextual reasons falls along uh, the lines of race and class. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these pretextual uh, sorts of stops, um, you know, and even though we know that we have data that shows that the traffic stop isn't a great tool that results in actual evidence of crime, it's so ingrained in uh, law enforcement culture and law enforcement practices that really now, um, you know, all a uh, person has to do is just get in their car and given the, the broad scope of traffic laws, officers are going to be able to find some reason to pull them over at some point. And, uh, you know, what this framework tries to do is it tries to give us an intervention where police don't have this ability to pull over people, and in particular, people of color for pretextual reasons mm-hmm. in order to uh, engage in these ruses for criminal evidence when they have no uh, uh, you know, concrete facts or even a reasonable suspicion that a driver or a passenger is engaged in any sort of criminal activity. Do, do you suspect that uh, some of the objections you're going to hear to this uh, framework is uh, a police will say, well, hey, we need to have traffic stops because that's an important part of our uh, of our law enforcement to catch people for other things. And that if we're not allowed to do this, that somehow that's going to increase crime somehow is that in any way legitimate and uh, is it expected that you might hear that as sort of blowback to this idea i expect that that is you know definitely a, a counterpoint that uh critics uh and in particular critics from law enforcement circles would lodge against this sort of framework um but what i would hope that people keep in mind is that um, you know one what empirical research actually tells us about traffic stops and, you know, the amount of people and the number of people that are searched or subjected to some sort of police activity during traffic stops, and there's no evidence of criminal activity that's found at all. Uh, And so, you know, the harms that we're seeing these traffic stops collectively, um, you know, really impose on communities, and in particular uh, communities of color, uh, I think that we need different solutions to Mm -hmm. think about how to enforce traffic safety uh, and if criminal enforcement is really a priority, we need to think of different ways other than the traffic stop to execute those goals, because decades of experience has taught us that it's not getting us to a point that uh, we really want us to get it to. And, you know, consistently, you know, these tragic incidents that are resulting in um, the officer killings of uh, unarmed people of color during traffic stops are really evidence of this broader problem. Your uh, your Stanford Law Review article uh, discusses a number of potential objections that uh, some will have in removing the police from uh, from traffic enforcement. I, of course, I will predict that we will see at least Republicans in large measure uh, sort of objecting to this idea simply out of hand because that's what they do. But are there, uh, you know, what objections do you suspect will be offered that, uh, well, both knee-jerk and legitimate concerns about this idea from opponents? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it will necessarily fall along, um, you know, those ideological lines as strongly as one might suspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think really what's at stake is, 
you know, the traffic stop today, it's really become this point of state intrusion into liberties. And I think that that's a point that, um, you know, I would hope there would be common ground on both sides of uh, the ideological divide. Um, but if not, uh, you know, and really just out of, um, you know, out of course, mm-hmm. uh, we see folks that are rejecting this. I think a big question that might come up is how do we fund uh, these types of systems? Uh, mm. And, you know, how do we have the resources to uh, sustain uh, a traffic uh, agency mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the police force at the same time? Uh, I, I received a, a, a ticket in the mail some years ago because I had accidentally been driving in a lane that w- had been recently turned into one of these, you know, toll-based express lanes. I was mm-hmm. not pulled over. I just received the ticket in the mail uh, with a photo of my car in the lane, uh, and I paid it. And I and I guess the photo was taken, you know, from one of the cameras above the highway. Uh, how many traffic infractions per year could be handled similarly? Uh, do we have any data on that without any face-to-face interaction with anybody at all? Again, it seems to me that if I'm speeding, I'll just I can be sent a ticket. I don't have to meet with anybody at all. It seems like you would avoid a lot of situations just by that alone. Right. So one of the reasons why it's difficult to pinpoint an exact number um, is because so many uh, traffic stops don't necessarily uh, end in tickets or. Uh, you know, it might be that there are warnings. There might mm-hmm. be that an officer, you know, never even pulls someone over for a traffic violation that they uh, observe. Um, what we do know is at least data involving the number of people that have come into contact with the police through in-person traffic stops, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, approximately uh, uh, over 18 million from uh, a 2018 study. Mm. But my concern, um, and, you know, this is one of these hard conversations that's coming through now, is that if we take traffic enforcement out of the hands of the police, can we rely on automation? And one of the things that I'm stressing uh, and that I think we need to be careful about is that, um, you know, we have to be concerned about issues about fines and fees and unpaid traffic debt that wrap people into the criminal justice system mm-hmm. at a later point. And so, you know, my fear is that I, I don't think that we want to end up in a system where um, maybe we're at the front end removing police from traffic enforcement, but then relying on solutions that essentially drive up ticketing mm-hmm. in ways that result in people that can't pay traffic, uh, traffic debt being wrapped into the criminal justice system. So, um, you know, so I think that automation, to the extent that we're going to rely on cameras for red light violations or speeding violations, I think it needs to be part of a broader conversation about what systems of fines and fees look like in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I press in the article, that to the extent that we're going to look to those solutions, it's critical that we really think about uh, what fines and fees systems look like. Yeah, there, it seems like there's a lot to learn here. I mean, it's it, like I say, in one sense, it seems like a radical new idea you're presenting. On the other end, it seems like uh, just an absolute no-brainer. But there is a lot of details to work out, to figure out, and I know that there are various experiments I mentioned at the top uh, going on around the country. We've got just a, a minute or so left here, uh, Jordan, but uh, I mentioned Berkeley and some of the other places that are beginning to work with your ideas are any of them far enough along at this point that we might have some empirical data to know if 
if if this tactic actually works or are we still sort of in the theoretical phase here of of something that seems certainly seems like a common sense reform but we sort of need to try it out around the country yes i I think in the united states we're really at the beginning of thinking about these issues and you know berkeley's uh, proposal definitely is the most far advanced in sort of working through the details. Um, you know, I would stress that you know one thing that I think is important for us to consider is that New Zealand from uh, the 1930s to the 1990s uh, mm-hmm. actually had a separate traffic enforcement agency that was completely independent of the police that handled traffic enforcement. So we know that there's at least one country that for several decades took this approach. And at least the evidence shows that the reasons why they reverted to it really had to do with uh, political reasons and uh, you know, fiscally conservative uh, government in the 1990s taking over and rolling back uh, the public sector. Mm. Uh, but if we're truly committed to uh, you know, racial and economic justice in traffic settings and in particular how it affects uh, police, I think that New Zealand could provide a good example that shows that this isn't just theoretical, but that it's completely feasible for... Uh, jurisdictions to do uh, and even do at a nationwide level. It's absolutely fascinating, and, you know, it's just so easy, uh, as we've seen uh, ideologically, uh, you know, Republicans saying, aha, they want to defund the police, haha, and, uh, you know, let's let's give more money to the police without actually talking about these crucial, critical ideas that uh, one of which you draw out in uh, both of these uh, law papers. Jordan Blair Woods, I I hope you'll stay in touch with us on this as things move forward and as things get fleshed out and tried around the country, because these are really important ideas and these are really important discussions that we need to be having. Jordan Blair Woods is an associate professor of law at the University of Arkansas School of Law. Professor, I will link to your uh, these these two papers at Stanford and at Michigan for people to look at themselves. It's important work. I thank you for uh, for bringing it out and I thank you for joining us today on the broadcast to discuss it. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Our pleasure. All right. Uh, oh, I hope we have a lot of conversations like that in I the know. days ahead. Solutions, things to do moving forward. Yeah, instead of idiotic political slogans on Fox News or anywhere else. Okay, let's take a quick break. And we're back with Desi Doyen and some really good news hidden in today's Green <laughs> News Report. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. That's a lot of show in one show, Desidoyan. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's not over yet. Nope. As we get to our latest Green News report. This is a frightening report. UN Global Climate Assessment warns climate change and sea level rise are accelerating. U.S. and China agree to cooperate on climate action. Plus... How about the 40,000 people plus that's lost their jobs in this industry 
just in about 10 years. Nation's largest coal mining union backs shift from coal mining to renewable energy jobs. All of those exciting shifts and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Hi, I'm Kevin McCarthy. Hi. Welcome to the Energy Innovation Agenda. <laughs> oh, he meant that. Democrats often dismiss Republicans as being disinterested in addressing global climate change. This is just false. Well, that's true. If by false, he means true. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, does Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy realize that gaslighting is not an actual energy source? <laughs> Apparently not. Let the gaslighting begin. Begin? Will it ever end? So let's start here. With real news. Yes. Go ahead. We've got a big climate week this week. On Earth Day, on Thursday, President Joe Biden will host a two-day virtual Leaders Summit on Climate to try to regain credibility among the international community that the U.S. is back and ready to work on climate action for reals this time. That sounds virtually exciting. <laughs> Based on Biden's American Jobs Plan to transition the U.S. economy away from fossil fuels. Plus... The White House also hopes to push other countries to ratchet up their targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions that cause the climate crisis. Associated Press summarized Biden's tricky task as, quote, how to put forward a non-binding but symbolic goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that will have a tangible impact on climate change efforts not only in the U.S. but throughout the world. That's a lot of words. Speaking of around the world, a pretty big diplomatic development in advance of the summit, the U.S. and China on Sunday formally agreed to cooperate on climate change, a crucial agreement between the world's two biggest emitters amid rising tensions between the two countries. That's big news. The joint statement reads, quote, both sides recognize climate change is a serious and urgent threat to the survival and development of mankind, and both countries will, quote, continue to discuss concrete actions in the 2020s to reduce emissions aimed at keeping the Paris Agreement aligned temperature limit within reach. Nice. And it matters because on Monday, the World Meteorological Organization released its annual State of the Global Climate Report. The report finds that climate change did not stop for COVID-19, but the pandemic exacerbated the challenges of extreme weather, food and water insecurity, and the displacement of vulnerable populations in developing countries. Sea level rise and ocean acidification are accelerating, and 2020 saw new records in droughts, wildfires, and extreme heat waves. In a press conference, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on developed countries to help developing countries adapt to climate impacts and do more to cut their own emissions, saying this is a make-or-break year to confront the global climate emergency. Anthropogenic climate change, climate disruption caused by human activities, human decisions, and human folly. And the effects are disastrous. This is truly a pivotal year for humanity's future. 
And this report shows we have no time to waste. Fakest accent I've ever heard. Here in the U.S., the nation's largest coal miners union on Monday said they would accept President Biden's American jobs plan to transition the nation away from coal and other fossil fuels in wow. exchange for a, quote, true energy transition. Really? With new renewable energy jobs and investment in their communities, including development of technology to capture carbon emissions from coal plants. Union President Cecil Roberts said ensuring jobs for displaced miners, including 7,000 coal workers who lost their jobs in just the last year, is crucial to any infrastructure bill taken up by Congress. I think we need to provide a future for those people, a future for anybody that loses their job because of a transition in this country, regardless if it's coal oil, gas, or any other industry for that matter. Wow, though, this is big news. The Coal Miners Union is saying we're cool with giving up our jobs so long as you give us other ones to replace them. Exactly. Big news. Finally, Interior Secretary Deb Holland on Friday revoked a number of Trump-era orders that expanded fossil fuel development on the public's lands, calling them, quote, inconsistent with the department's commitment to protect public health, conserve land, water, and wildlife, and elevate science. Among those actions, Holland revoked Trump's rollback of a moratorium on federal coal leasing and revoked his orders to expand oil drilling in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve, and she moved to make climate change a priority in agency decisions. Nice! Let the revoking continue. (laughs) For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yeah, Jojo, keep up the good work. Uh, Getting back to where we should be somehow after four years of setbacks. Anyway, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. The big news there, however, that I think was somewhat buried, and I just want to highlight it again, the largest coal mining union in the nation says we're okay with ending coal mining jobs as long as you give us new ones. Yeah, I mean, I would say that they're, you know, they're they're not happy about it, but they are ready to move forward into the 21st century. They recognize the reality that coal is dying and it would be great to honor the coal country workers and all the fossil fuel workers who have helped bring uh, affordable energy to the United States and help them move into the 21st century. Yes, it would be uh, a fine idea. I'm all in favor of it. Um, And, uh, of course, now we know that the coal miners probably are as well. It's only the people who own the coal companies and the oil companies and who happen to own the Republican Party who may have a different idea of that. Anyway, uh, very good. Good news. Thank you very much to Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks also to my guest today, Jordan Blair Woods of the University of Arkansas, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always a pleasure. It's always an honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, feel free to download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site. Please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And uh, there's lots of options there for one-time or monthly donations that will help keep Desi and I on your public airwaves. Thanks in advance. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. 
I'll see you there. Till I see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.